Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellen podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. Okay, so we have been for the last oh, month or so um, going through the miracles of Jesus as told by John. Okay, so we've talked about um, Jesus turning water into wine. We've talked about Jesus... Um, healing the royal official's son. We've talked about Jesus healing the uh, paralytic, Jesus feeding the 5,000. So today we are talking about Jesus walking on water. So it's a little bit different than the other miracles that we've covered. Um, And while we're focusing technically on the account in John, we're definitely going to bring in those accounts in Matthew and Mark today too. So um, we've we've got the references up there so you're kind of familiar of where the different places are that you can find um, this story. But how many of you, by show of hands, feel like you're familiar with the story of Jesus walking on water? Okay, good. So assuming that most of you are, we've got some satirical comics to get us started with today. Or not. There we go. So, Joseph, come quick. Jesus is taking his first steps. Okay. <laughs> Young Jesus was tough to beat at tag. Got a couple other ones up there for you. The downside to walking on water. And my personal favorite, which is not in the John's account, but Peter finds his faith to be much stronger in the winter. <laughs> Fun times. Okay, so um, in the Gospels, there are typically three used words to, three words used to talk about miracles. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this word, this Greek word, is typically translated as power. It's this act of raw force. And this is what leaves people amazed. But in John, the Greek word is translated as signs. And so there's this difference. In John, the intention is that it's pointing to something greater, right? There's a greater reality. There's something more happening here. So today, I would like us to consider a question um, and keep it in mind as we go throughout the passage and throughout the story. And that question is, why does it matter? Why does the story matter? Why do certain details and phrases in the story matter? Why does it matter? And I'll kind of keep bringing that question back up throughout, um, throughout our time today. Now, we don't put scripture verses up on the screen. So if you don't want to use your phone or um, if you'd like to have a Bible to use today, we'd be happy to let you borrow one of ours. You can just single to us and we'd be happy to, to get that for you. So we are going to find ourselves today in John chapter 6, starting in verse 15. We're going to read through that passage, but then I am going to go back and kind of retell the story, pulling in the accounts from Matthew and Mark, so we get a full picture of what this all looked like. So just to preface, this, what has happened right before this story is that Jesus finished feeding the 5,000. So that's where we're picking up here today. So again, we're going to be in John chapter 6. Uh, Starting in verse 15, if you want to read this with me. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. 
Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So that's what we have. That's the passage today. So here is how I would tell you the story based on the accounts we have in Matthew, Mark, and John. So Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000. It was pretty impressive, right? He'd filled their bellies, a lot of them, right? And it was so impressive, they decided they were going to make him king by force. This is not the way, right? This is not how Jesus did things. Um, So Mark says that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat without him while he dismissed the crowd. And then the disciples head across the sea. Jesus goes up on a mountain by himself to pray. And Matthew and Mark make it abundantly clear. They keep going back and reiterating the point that Jesus was not in that boat. They want to make sure you understand that. Uh, the crowd knew that too. They knew, they knew that Jesus was not in the boat with the disciples. So Jesus was still on their side of the sea. By this time, there's a strong wind making it really hard for the disciples, uh, making the sea really rough. Now, one of my classes in college was Bible and archaeology. It was a lot of maps. So many maps. Anybody love geography here? Okay, good. Two of you will care about this, right? (laughs) I got lost in an ocean or a sea of information when I was sending for this message. Um, Mark's gospel says that they went to Bethsaida, while John's gospel says that they left Bethsaida. Um, Matthew and Mark both say they landed at Gennesaret. Um, John says that they landed at Capernaum. There's, There's all these different places, and they don't all line up. So why does this matter? Well, that's kind of a trick question because it really doesn't, actually. If, if we have to pin down the—we we don't have to pin down the exact location of this miracle for it to matter. Okay, so that's kind of the point with that. And I'm telling you, I went down a rabbit hole on this. Scholars don't agree on the exact location, so I'm not going to solve that for us today either since I'm not even a scholar and they don't even agree. So here's what I can provide for you, though. Some fun facts about the Sea of Galilee. It is 13 miles north to south, 7 miles east to west. It has a 33-mile circumference. So just in comparison, White Rock Lake's looping trail is 10 miles. So it's like pretty significantly larger than that. Um, Also, it's 696 feet below sea level. So all of these factors um, and the winds blowing over the cliffs late in the day, it causes these really sudden and violent downdrafts. And so maybe in the Gospels when we see the disciples get caught in storms multiple times, maybe it wasn't just a series of unfortunate events. Maybe it was kind of expected. Who knows? Okay, back to our story. So the sea is rough. Mark says that Jesus saw the, that the disciples were making headway painfully from, I guess, his, his mountain where he was praying. Um, so between 3 and 6 in the morning, when a lot of us, you know, probably lost sleep last night, we just skipped 2 o'clock, um, they rode about 3 to 4 miles. That's what, what's what the Bible tells us. And Jesus shows up. And you know what Mark also says? He says that Jesus meant to pass by them. And the first time I read this, I'm like, uh, Jesus made a mistake? Like, oh, rats, I missed my exit. Let me cut across three lanes of traffic and try to make it. No, that's, that's just Texas drivers. So. Um, so why does it matter? Why does this phrase matter that he meant to pass by them? Well, we'll get to this in just a second. Um, so here comes Jesus walking on the water. It's dark. It's between 3 to 6 in the morning. How did they even see him? The Bible doesn't really tell us exactly what they saw. So when I put myself in the story, I kind of imagine they caught something in their peripherals, right? They saw something in the corner of their eye. Like when I'm walking down a dark hall or a a dark street, and I swear I just saw something right out of the corner of my eye. 
And you can ask Aaron, my husband, what I'm like when I'm running on fumes. We have a four-month-old. We also have a child with asthma. We have a two-year-old. So we have, a, we're gonna, we get woken up a lot. Um, lots of tears in the middle of the night. Me, not the kids. Um, so I will tell you, though, the creepiest thing is when I'm already out feeding the baby. And a form appears in my doorway. Any parents know what I'm talking about? Just being, yeah, you see the form. And I'm not even startled awake, right? I was already awake, but it's just the form. And logically, I know it's my two-year-old, but it's the presence of the form. It's enough to freak me out, chills through my body. And if that's how I am, then surely the disciples were tired too, right? I mean, again, three to six in the morning, somewhere in that window, they've been rowing against the wind. They just fed 5,000 people, helped pass out food, helped clean up afterwards. They're double, triple exhausted physically, emotionally. Um, and I don't see right when I'm tired either. So, you know, again, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what they saw, except that they freaked out and they said that it was a ghost. So the Greek word used here is translated as like spirit appearances or apparitions. So if we know this, then it's not necessarily like the disciples thought they saw like cute little Casper, right? A glowing little ghost, but maybe like an evil spirit. Ooh, that would, that'd be kind of creepy. See out on the water if you think you see an evil spirit. Um, so here the disciples are freaking out and Jesus says, take heart as I don't be afraid. Why does this matter? We'll get to this in a second, too. So our message today focuses on the story in John, but in Matthew, at this point in the story, this is where Peter walks on water to Jesus, and then Jesus gets into the boat. It says the wind ceased, and John's account says immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, when I think about that, when I kind of imagine what that was like, I think about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. What's better, Gene Wilder or Johnny Depp? Which version? Wilder. Thank you. Yes. I hope that all of you agree with me there. <laughs> um, so you think about the tunnel of terror, that scene, right? There's like the really creepy things on the walls. It's kind of eerie. Wonka's doing this weird chant and they're all screaming like, get us out of here, Wonka, make it stop. And he's like, okay. And all of a sudden they're there. That's kind of what I imagine, right? There's this storm and there's chaos and they're freaked out about this ghost. And all of a sudden they're there. They're at the land of where they were going. That is not biblical. That is just how I imagine that. Um, so the next day, the people that were on the original side of the lake where Jesus fed the 5,000 couldn't find Jesus. So they're trying to look for him. And they know that he had sent his disciples across the lake. So they go to, find, they go to try to find him. They find him, and they're like, um, how, did, how did you get here? And the conversation afterwards, which we didn't read, has everything to do with how Jesus is the bread of life, how he can fill our lives, not just our bellies. So that's the story. That's what we have. What's the point why does it matter? And we could get hung up on a lot of things if we tried, but really we need to look deeper in the text and in context of the story. The miracle wasn't something shared with the crowd, right? Like they were a little suspicious. Um, they wanted to be around him, sure. They were really impressed that he had fed them, sure. Um, they were confused about how he had gotten on the other side of the lake, sure. But when they did find him, they just went on talking about how he had fed the 5,000. So that is what they were, they were worried about. They were totally oblivious to what had happened in the early morning hours. So then what did this mean for the disciples? If the crowd wasn't privy to this, then what did the story mean for the disciples? And there's some really key things we need to look at from this story. First, I want to make it really clear, this was not just a really cool stunt that Jesus did, okay? Um, it's not something he'd been practicing or something like that. Particularly from John's point of view, miracles were signs, right? It was pointing to something greater, a greater reality. 
It's not like the Harlem Globetrotters, right, who do these really cool things just because they can, just to be impressive. That's not what we have here in this story. The miracle served a purpose, to signal the divine. That's what the point of this miracle was. And not like Poseidon in Greek mythology, right, who's the god of the sea. No, Jesus is the god of all. Not just the sea. He's the god of all. So back to the story. It says that Jesus meant to pass by them. What did Mark mean by that? He's not trying to tell us that Jesus made a mistake. What Mark is intending to communicate is that Jesus intended that the disciples see him pass by. He meant for that to happen. It just doesn't make sense otherwise, right? Why, why wouldn't he have just met them on the other side or just snapped his fingers and showed up in the boat? It doesn't make sense unless he meant for them to see him passing by. It just doesn't make sense otherwise. So to look at this further, we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 33. And we're going to read a a bit in this. So if you'd like to turn there with me, you can. Exodus chapter 33. um, And we're going to start in verse 12. So Exodus 33, verse 12. And we're going to read a number of verses. Then we'll jump a couple verses in, in chapter 34 as well. So Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know who you will send with me. You've said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else would distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Then jumping to chapter 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This passage in Exodus with God and Moses echoes, or rather the the, the latter echoes the, the former Jesus walking on water, passing by his disciples, echoes this incident with God and Moses in Exodus. How cool is that? Right? And not only that, in Job uh, chapter 9, which ironically um, we studied in Lent last year, um, Job says that God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Um, The same words here in Job are the same used in Mark's account of the story, which makes this undeniable claim to Jesus' divinity. So God passed by Moses, his glory passed by him, and Jesus intended to pass by his disciples, not as an accident, but very much on purpose. Um, Also in Psalm 107, verse 29 and 30, he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Look at all those things from the Old Testament that are tying, that are being tied together with the story, showing the divinity of Jesus. Okay, next thing we're going to highlight. Um, so as the disciples are freaking out about this ghost, Jesus says, it is I, don't be afraid. That's the NIV. Now, the Greek phrase, ego eimi, it is I, is often translated as I am. 
This connects us back to Exodus again. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And this connection becomes clearer as we see this phrase continue to be used. So like in John 8, 58, when Jesus says, I tell you the truth before Abraham was, I am. It's the same phrase. So it's translated as I in one place, but it's I am in another. So if we keep this in mind, we can rightly understand the New Living Translation's interpretation of this verse. Don't be afraid. The I am is here. Y'all, it gives me chills. (laughs) Thinking about what that meant for them. That's really just incredible. So why does this matter? Jesus wasn't just saying, look what I'm doing. He was essentially saying, look at who I am. Look at me. So what does this story mean for me? (laughs) Jesus isn't walking this earth. Pretty safe to say he's not going to be, you know, hanging out on White Rock Lake or Joe Pool Lake or your preferred body of water later this afternoon. Um, So why should this matter to us? Why does it matter? And uh, this series, we're considering the idea of miracles and and pondering in our own hearts whether or not we're ready for a miracle. Brenda has asked us that over the last couple of weeks. Are you ready for a miracle? And maybe, um, you know, when you hear the term miracle, you have an ideal, you know, miracle that you would like to see happen in your own life. Maybe something specific comes to mind. I know I have a few things that I would like to see happen in my own life. The thing is, The miracle we experience may not fill our bellies, like when he fed the 5,000. It may not heal our bodies, like when he healed the paralytic or the man born blind. It may not take away the pain of our loved ones, like when he healed the royal official's son. We may not get a walk on water like Peter, right? That would be cool. It may not end a pandemic. It may not stop a war on the other side of the world. But we might just see God. And here's the part that will really knock your socks off. We don't have to wait for this miracle. It's already happened. It is happening. God has already revealed himself and continues to do so. The I am is already here. Already here. So the band's going to come, and we're going to start just kind of wrapping this up. A lot of pastors um, write their sermons on this miracle, but they focus on Matthew's account, which I mentioned has... The story, or it includes where Peter walked on water, right? And we would like to focus on that for some reason. Um, I personally think maybe it's because we like to be the star of our own stories, yeah? Um, And, you know, we think it'd be really cool if we could walk on water like Peter. Look what Peter did because he followed Jesus. And then we silently judge him because I would never doubt Jesus like that and fall into the water. Absolutely not. (laughs) But newsflash, maybe the story's not about me. Not maybe. It's definitely not about me. Definitely not. Uh, Amy Gannett says in her book, Fix Your Eyes, the biggest mistake we can make in reading the Bible is to assume it's a story about us. We don't want to make that mistake today or any day. So that's what this miracle is about. It's about God. And there's a lot of mystery when it comes to God, right? We, we acknowledge that, especially here at Life in Debellum. We hold space for that. There, it's okay to have questions and doubts and concerns and fears. Whatever that is, that's okay. We hold space for that. But while we may never truly be able to understand all that God is, we can rest assured that our God wants to be known. How do I know that? He gave us the Bible, right? His revelation of himself. Again, to, 
to quote um, the book Fix Your Eyes again. And again, it says, just because God cannot be fully known does not mean that he cannot be sufficiently known. Right? We have what we need to know God. In Hebrews chapter 1, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John also writes in chapter 1 that Jesus has made God known. So how do we know God? Seeing God, experiencing Jesus, that's the miracle. It's not about something cool we can do. It's all about who our God is. So don't just look at what Jesus can do. Look at who he is. Look for him. Look at him. Now, originally I was going to sing, but I decided not to. That's Miranda's job. That's her thing, right? But I like to read a couple of um, lines from a song by George Strait. Mm. Just walked down the street to the coffee shop. Had to take a break. I've been by her side for 18 hours straight. Saw a flower growing in the middle of the sidewalk, pushing up through the concrete, like it was planted right there for me to see. The flashing lights, the honking horns all seemed to fade away. In the middle of that hospital room, or in the shadow of the hospital room at 5.08, I saw God today. I've been to church. I've read the books. I know he's here, but I don't look near as often as I should. His fingerprints are everywhere. I just look down to stop and stare. Open my eyes, and man, I swear, I saw God today. So as you leave today, I urge you to look for God. Where will you see him? Maybe when you're reading the scriptures. Maybe when you're engaging in prayer. Maybe when you're meeting with your faith community. Or maybe, just maybe, you'll see him in the everyday miracles. The I am is already here. May we see God, may we recognize him, may we know him. Now, today, the benediction that I would like to close us with is one that is familiar to probably a lot of us. And maybe feelings come up when we hear this one today. And that's okay. But it's so relevant to what we have talked about today that, that I don't feel I can do any other benediction. <laughs> and it's from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 and 26 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Y'all have a great week. Thanks for being here.